Hello, folks, and welcome to Got Your Back, NHL edition. LeBron, Rashog, and MJ. Yes, Mike Johnson standing by. An eventful day around the National Hockey League as Pierre Dorian is out as general manager of the Ottawa Senators. We're going to dive deep into that. And Los Angeles Kings defenseman Drew Doughty in conversation. Some great stuff from Drew Doughty, one of the truly unique players and characters in the National Hockey League. Reminder, got your back. NHL edition brought to you by Kuma Outdoor Gear. They got a wide range of gear to fit all your outdoor needs from tents and sleeping bags, travel games, pet products, drinkware. And are they ever fired up about their switchback heated chair? Heated by Bluetooth technology. And I had one out in full force on Halloween. Both Randine and I, gentlemen, mm-hmm. sitting out nice and relaxed on the driveway. We had the, the fire pit going, but the switchback heated chair, keeping our tushes nice and warm while we were handing out the Halloween candy and uh, you know, very, very handy stuff. What's that? the brochure, Halloween-worthy rump roaster while you hand out the kids uh, the treats but uh <laughs> that would be a good cause for it that is well done now it's awesome now does it get toasty like toasty toasty yeah i mean yeah you, you can. can feel it but you can yeah. actually turn it up like there's an app on your phone and you can yes. turn it up and down on there so i had her cranked man it was good it was now can good. you control your partner's chair and just like put like you know like <laughs> the hot foot the hot ass well no nope. uh Warm it no, up. you you can't do that. But it um, there was a fight. Like the neighbors all wanted their turn in the switchback chair too. So it was uh, yeah, it was a good Tell night. Tell them to go to kuma.com and get one. Yeah, Kuma Outdoor Gear uh, is there where you, you can find all of that stuff. Okay, guys, we got we have so much to get to because we're breaking news. Uh, Pierre Dorian is out as general manager of the Ottawa Senators on the heels of the National Hockey League announcing that the Senators are going to be dinged a first round draft pick in one of the coming three seasons. And this is a steep, steep price to pay. But Pierre, I just want to do a quick reset. If you can, as concisely as possible, take us through the sequence of events before Michael Andlauer was ever had anything to do with the Ottawa Senators, but the sequence of events that landed them in this position. Yeah, so at the trade deadline in March 22, uh, on trade deadline day, Vegas and Anaheim tried to make an Evgeny Dandenhoff trade, which was later rescinded. By, uh, by the NHL, and it was a big story at the time, and it was rescinded because, um, you know, everyone found out that Dandenhoff had Anaheim on his no-no list, on his no-trade list, and he was not in the mood to waive. Um, after that, there were all kinds of things that came out, as you guys may remember, but most of it centered around Vegas really getting criticized severely for this rescinded trade. I mean, how could you not ask him to waive? Well... If you remember at the time, Kelly McCrimmon and the Golden Knights said we were not aware of his no trade list. And I think some people kind of rolled their eyes and said, yeah, right. Well, this pretty much exonerates them for sure because the league investigated this. I think maybe with some uh, nudging along from Vegas who wanted to obviously clear their name through all this, all this time. But, you know, the league put out a 73-page report, as Michael Landlauer of the Senators talked about today. And in it, it absolutely hammers Ottawa for negligence for not including the no trade list of Evgeny Dandenhoff when he went from Ottawa to Vegas in the previous trade. And for those listening who, you know, this is kind of inside baseball, but when you have a no trade list, central registry, all that stuff's supposed to transport from from one team to another when there's a trade, all the information. And, um, and obviously in this case, Ottawa did not put it in uh, his in the trade to Vegas. And so Vegas 
actually did not know about the no trade list. So there you go. So Michael Andlauer, Johnny, is sitting there today having just spent a pile of money on this franchise and having a huge chunk of, you know, the future value carved out of it in the form of a first round pick. What do you make of the sequence of events and and the position that they found themselves in that led to Dorian's firing? Okay, so if I unpack this really quickly, one first thought, how does the NHL not have, Pierre talks about the centralized registry. The fact that it is is incumbent on like, not, not to say that Ottawa shouldn't have known and said what the no trade provisions are, but how is that not all kind of centralized where the NHL can look and say, here you go, Vegas, this is his no trade list. We don't have to trust them saying yes or no. It's, it's here in a place you can access. And if there's privacy things about players not wanting to know where they don't want to go, you can keep it locked until that player is traded and then you open it and you say yes or no. Like It seems like there should be a tighter system than, hey, is there any no trade stuff? No, there's no no trade stuff. Okay, we're good then. Like it should be more official than it sort of was because that's, yeah. from what I understand, Vegas asked, as they should, is there any no trade stuff with Dadnoff? And they were told no, and they accepted that at face value, which was incorrect, and Ottawa was punished for it. But it feels like they need a more centralized, organized way to do that. Thought one. Thought two. Stunned. Stunned they came with a first-round pick. This happened like two years ago, this trade, the original trade between Ottawa and Vegas. And there's a new owner who just spent 900-something million American for this team. Like, not on his watch. Yes, the guy who did it was still working there. But, like, I thought that would mitigate the severity of the punishment. And a first-round pick forfeiture is pretty significant. Um, to, to say sorry for Vegas for having some egg on your face and getting out, you know, again, maybe getting some public backlash or being a cutthroat organization when really it wasn't your fault. Like maybe a very public flogging and apology and a fourth rounder would have been sufficient for Vegas, but they really came down. I'm surprised by that. When I heard that Dadnoff's, the, the uh, punishment was a, a, a first round forfeiture, my first thought went, and I like Pierre Dorian. I know him. He's a nice man. My first thought said, this feels like a fireable offense. Like, it's like whoever was in charge of doing that, it's on his watch. And to make a mistake as egregious as that, that costs you that much when there's no real valid reason to have made that error. And I guess Michael Anlauer felt the same way. Like that, you know, sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. But, you know, we hold people accountable and it was a really bad mistake. That's going to cost them severely. And that's so... I guess I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised because just when you hear it, you're like, yeah, that that feels like if you're going to get fired over something like an administrative thing, that would be it. Um, but it's a bad spot for for Ottawa. Like, think about what's happened to them. The Pinto thing comes down. The Dadnoff things comes down. Now they got a new GM. Steve Stales is doing a whole bunch of stuff on the fly, all with a team that feels like they should be on the rise. So, Shaggy, I, right. I, I guess a lot of thoughts swirling surprising it happened this quick but not really because this feels like a pretty egregious mistake so Andlauer called it negligent talking about what was discovered about the way the senators handled this he admitted it was negligent that duty of care was ignored and i mean those are pretty damning statements right mm-hmm. and so that you know i mean like you said pierre dorian ends up on the outside looking in because of that would this punishment have been different had Dorian not been the general manager still of the Ottawa Senators, you think? Had they already moved on from him? Like, w- would it have been any different, do you think? More no, of a hindsight type thing, not still in the moment? I don't think so. Because in a way, I, you're punishing the guy who's still with the organization. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think so. Um, there's a lot to digest here to MJ's point. I mean, first of all, as tough a week as it's been, going back to the Shane Pinto suspension and now this first-round pick forfeiture, if you're an Ottawa Senators fan and you're listening to that news conference today, you have fallen in love with Michael Landlauer. He came out ablazing, frustrated, but complete transparency, not afraid to um, to really lay it all out there. I mean, uh, what was the quote? Um, why am I inheriting this? Frustrated. Yeah. Can't believe Frustrated. I'm inheriting this. Yeah. yeah. Also um, felt like he wasn't given enough information during the buying process. I believe yeah. he had said. Should have known you know, about Pinto. Should have known about Dadnoff for the potential for this yeah. to come down yes. like this way. And that seems to me is fair. Like that yeah. seems to be because, you know, maybe you're like, listen, you're going to take a first round pick. I'm going to take 10 million bucks off the board. Like, well, you know, whatever and it he is. He suggested that, Johnny. He right? passively sort of said, why did they not let us know more? Well, Maybe yeah. they wanted to make sure their buyer although, got full price. I don't know. Like he mentioned that not, stuff. He he's was not buying that. the team from the NHL. He's buying the team from uh, from the previous owners. But um, yeah. now, and beyond all that, and, and you know, the, the thing that that I think is going to be intriguing too is how the Senators now handle the decision of which first round pick they want to forfeit. Because if I were them, uh, I would absolutely drag this to 2026. If you believe this team is on the rise and that every year is going to be better than the next, um, I think you bet on yourself and make sure that you give up the worst of the three potential first-round picks. Number two, that will also buy you time to maybe try and change the penalty here. It gives you three years to keep going back at Gary Bettman and saying, really? Remember, the New Jersey Devils got hammered with a first-round pick forfeiture for um, – circumvention of the CBA on an Ilya Kovalchuk cheat deal. And um, and eventually the Devils kept whining about it and got the first round pick back. So Because they had new yeah. owners. That's why. That's well, why they got the first round pick that's back. That's a good point. I forgot and that's that. That's what Ann Lauer must be thinking. Like, well, hang, hang on, guys. Like, I've done yeah. a very solid for the, for the league by buying this team for this amount of money and investing in this community. Um, I, I, I think there's no question me. they're going to delay it. They're going to delay it, in my opinion. They're not going to. There's no way they give up a 24 first round pick this year in the next draft. They're well, going the to good wait. thing is, Pierre, right? The provisions are such that they have to decide within 24 hours after the lottery. So, like, they'll right. have full information. Let's say they miss the playoffs, they don't hit the lottery. They're 17th. They're like, okay, you know what? Let's do it right away because we're going to be better going forward. You know what I mean? Like, if yeah. they get, they kind of have all the information that year's particular draft available to them before they make the decision, what makes it a little bit right. easier, but it was, it was interesting. And I, it's, it was also refreshing. I don't know Michael Anlauer. I have never met Michael. Maybe I've met him, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I have, I don't have any relationship with him whatsoever. It's rare that owners speak so frankly about anything, mm-hmm. right. let alone something that they're ticked off about. And, right. you know, I think he, he told the line between showing his emotion, being res- but being respectful. Like he didn't, you know, sewer the league completely, but it made it very clear. He was kind of pissed off with how this went down and he wished it had been handled differently. And I think that is, a, like you mentioned, Ottawa fans, like that's our guy. Like that's our owner. Absolutely. Taking a, you know, a veiled shot at Wayne Gretzky. Like, I mean, like he had a lot to say. Yeah, well, well I don't think it was a shot. I, I don't think it was shot at Wayne Gretzky. The way I took that, honestly, it was the same way that I viewed the Pinto thing last week. The piece I wrote in The Athletic, which not everyone loved, was that I find it 
I struggle with the Pinto suspension in a world in which we're getting bombarded by gambling everywhere right now mm-hmm. in sports. That That's the piece I wrote last week. And again, I'm not saying there shouldn't be sports gambling. It's legal. People should make money off it for sure. But I do think you have to acknowledge the ecosystem that now exists. And I think that's what Ann Lauer meant there, MJ. I, I think he was starting to go down that road and then he was like, oh. Yeah, he was referring to Steve Steos. I mean, they were basically making the point that the player today has more to deal with than any other generation of player from social media to now the advent of gambling and these young, young players are seeing Wayne Gretzky on these ads and maybe mixed messages and that sort of thing. I I do agree, but Johnny, he definitely was very vocal. He definitely, you know, we haven't heard owners get that into that much detail, anything near criticism of a hand, the way the NHL handles something that is rare territory for an owner, let alone a new one to do that. But you can't argue well, with the tone what he had to say. And this is a, I think a really important distinction to make here. Yes. He's a new owner and normally new owners don't say anything in the NHL because mm-hmm. they're yeah. so he's around. He has been to a lot of board of governors meetings for many years because of his role at Montreal. He's not a new guy. He's not a new guy. He would have enough of a relationship with Gary Bettman and Bill Daly to feel comfortable enough, even if a fine comes out of this, to say, you know what? I owe this to my fan base. I'm going to say it like it is. You would not see that. If literally, you know, Michael Anlauer had come out of nowhere and bought the Senators without any previous ownership in the NHL, there's no way he has that news conference. I guarantee you. Maybe, but what, what's I'm just trying to think about putting ourselves in his in his shoes. And what's tricky about what's just transpired is they're both kind of precedent setting decisions and punishments. Like we've never had a gambling related punishment come down like this on a player. Right. Right. Given the in the ecosystem that we live in now with all the gambling pervasiveness around the league, sponsorships, everything. And and we don't know exactly all the details of what happened with Shane Pinto and what was going on there, but um, so like, that's one, you're like, wow, half a year. That's, that seems like a lot. That's a lot to digest. And then we've never had it. Like there's been other moments where contractual, you know, misinterpretations. I don't know how you want to describe this or, you know, lack of full disclosure or something. Um, uh, but I don't recall it being this public taking this long and having anything remotely mm-hmm. like this severe of a punishment for this sort of thing. And Michael Anlauer would be thinking like, well, hang on, like, you're setting precedent on us and the precedent is steep, which, you know, that's where he's coming from, from the league. I'm like, I don't have a problem with the league saying the gambling stuff should have a hammer always. Right. Cause players need to know this is, this is not something you can fiddle with. And as far as the no trade stuff, when Ann Laura said it was a, uh, what a, a negligent yeah. and a duty of care. Was I think ignored. Like, you know what? This is the NHL. There is a standard that we should hold the professionals to, to be professional. And one yeah. of those is, you know, you got a guy there in Dadnoff who his life is impacted by either the carelessness or the forgetfulness or the, you know, if, if it was on purpose, like his life was directly impacted because right. that information was not disclosed the way it should have been. So I, you know, I don't have a problem with them coming down hard, but Ann Lara would have a problem. <laughs> it keeps happening to Ottawa. But by the way, as an aside on the whole no trade list thing, because I really went down a rabbit hole uh, in (laughs) March 22 about all this, because I don't know if you remember this. At the GM's meeting in March 22, which was right after this trade got rescinded, Bill Daly came out and announced that he had communicated with the NHLPA 
And the intention was to finally build uh, like a central warehouse of all these no trade yes. lists. So that central registry had them all on file and, and the PA at first seemed to be on board. Well, last year, the whole thing got thrown out the window. They didn't do it. The PA got cold feet, I think, because they felt that that's, you know, personal informational players that shouldn't be out there in terms of, you know, places they don't want to get traded or traded to. Um, and and the league, I, I actually have, I've tried communicating twice uh, with Bill Daly over the last couple of days, kind of knowing that this was maybe coming. I want to get an answer as to whether the league still went ahead and tried to to fix that with the no trade list or not. And I haven't been able to get a straight answer yet. So, I mean, again, stunning that's Stunning that it's not. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's stunning that it's not. Because it could happen again. And centralized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. And I would just say this. If I was a player, I would have that in my wallet, like laminated, like, here's my yeah. list. Like, like, don't even, like, it would be quick, so quick on the draw. It would be here every single yeah. time, right away. Like, yeah, I, 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 that part. Well, that and, part and what stinks. We even went down this road is yeah. shocking. And, and, and just one last thing, because it's a bit too inside uh, baseball, but even more confusing is the fact that some no trade lists have to be submitted um, by the start of the season or by July 1st, and other trade lists aren't submitted until the team asks for them. Like, mm -hmm. why can't we have yeah. just like one rule for all this? I mean, whatever. Whenever your list goes, Roshagi, you got a list. Once you submit it, whenever you submit it, it goes to the league. Maybe it has a double whatever password so that they can't open it without your password. So it's in there. And as soon as you get traded, you fire off your password and then they know. I don't know. It feels like I don't, you don't have to be a, a tech genius, cybersecurity expert to figure out a way to both protect the player's privacy and also make sure that the league has the information they need to allow trades or not allow trades. At the same time, an agent's probably done a better job if the expectation is, you want to trade my client, let us know, we'll give you a list at the time, as opposed to the start of a season where you never know yeah. what might change six right. months in, right? So there's different types. There's different, you know, ferocities yeah. of, of right. no trades. But it, what, what, the system we, clearly we, we, needs to be streamlined. Yes. Yep, and one here. last thing we should, before we move on from Ottawa, but I thought in the sake of the transparency that Michael Anlier was displaying in the news conference, he made it pretty clear that if this Dananoff thing doesn't come down, he was not leaning towards parting ways with Pierre Dorio. You know, sounds, sounds to me like he's annoyed that this has had to happen and that, you know, because I think a lot of people assume when Steve Steos was named the boss here in Ottawa that Pierre Dorio's name uh, days were numbered, but I thought that was revealing that basically Anlier was like, we didn't want to do this, but now we have no choice, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so it gave me the impression at the very least that if, if you're going to try to read between the lines that Anlier and Steve Steos were at least going to give Dorian the full season before deciding whether or not they were going to have a, a GM change. And Pierre, real quick, like, we think Stevie Steos just runs this out the whole year. Like, I mean, it's so new, it's so fresh, but he's he yeah. alluded to the fact that you know, he'll cross, you'll figure that out as he goes. He's just kind of got to try to manage and settle everything down. Let the play, yeah. like, just relax, boys. Nothing else is coming down the pike. Like, this is our group. We're okay. But um, he's certainly capable. And a lot of people thought he was going to be that in that position anyways. But do you think, do you think he runs with it for a long time? Or does he sort of actively get looking? So, so this is, I don't know is the answer because, uh, 
obviously all this just happened, but I will tell you that this is a debate now with front offices when they, when they have an interim GM position and what to do with it is whether to start your process mid season when you don't have a full access to maybe all the candidates you'd like to hire right. or to wait until the off season when the, when you have a longer list to access. Um, all I would say is that there's some obvious names out there. I mean, I mean, first of all, even internally, you got an assistant GM, a young guy like Ryan Bonus. I mean, usually someone internally always gets a look. Um, so I don't think you can discount that. But you also have guys, I always try to think of, of, of people that have, have gone gotten pretty close of late. Matthew Darsh in Tampa, the assistant GM to uh, Julian Brisebois, interviewed right. extremely well at Montreal for the job that Kent Hughes got. Jim Rutherford told me on the record that he was so impressed by Matthew Darsh in the Vancouver Canucks interview process, I ended up with him hiring Alvin. And I don't know this 100%, but I'm willing to say this right now with my two friends here, Ryan Rashog and uh, Mike Johnson. I believe Matthew Darsh is the boss in Pittsburgh if Kyle Dubas turns that down. Hmm. So all I'm saying is start with the facts and then extrapolate. Matthew Darsh has come close now in a couple of big job opportunities. To me, he'd be a guy, if you're Steve Steos, that you would want to reach out to at some point. Let's put a bow on this Ottawa conversation here, Johnny. Pierre Dorian's tenure in Ottawa will be remembered as? Underwhelming and tumultuous. You know, like, they, they took a long time. They, they, they never really got to the level they got to. They had the one great run with Carlson there to the – the conference finally lost to Pittsburgh in game seven. And um, since that moment, they sort of slid away and good players have left the market. And, you know, there's the whole, listen, a different owner was there and that whole thing and the building, there's been a lot of stuff around the Ottawa team that hasn't let it feel settled. And they haven't had the kind of success recently that they would have hoped for. So, and then for it to end this way, like, I mean, bang, 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 these like, you know, different things that are controversial or whatever, um, it's a tough way to end for a good man. Like he's a very nice man. And, uh, yeah. um, and it feels like this team is like on the cusp of being good and all this is happening and he won't be able to see it through. They need, yeah, I got a lot. I, I got a lot of time for Pierre Dorian. Uh, as MJ says, he's, he's a really affable guy. I think his track record over eight years to me, it's a mixed bag. I, I you know, this is the guy that before he was GM, by the way, drafted Eric Carlson. I think he's a guy that has a great eye for talent. I don't know that when you complete all the GM checkpoints, he was a great trade GM. So missing that part of the bag sometimes. I would also say to his defense that obviously the working conditions under the late Eugene Melnick were not ideal for any GM, no matter who it was. Um, right. And that's part of the reality of at least those years. So Steve Stales takes over for now. This organization needs quiet. The performance on the ice will be what it is. If there's any noise that needs to come from there. They need 18 months of relative quiet off mm -hmm. ice where we're not talking about any more of this kind of stuff. Okay, uh, moving on here, guys, before we get to Drew Doughty, we do have to talk about what happened um, with Adam Johnson. Just an absolutely wow. tragic happening uh, in our game and our, our condolences go out to all of his family and all of his friends, just an absolutely horrific happening. Um, and here we are a couple of days out and, and it sparked conversation. And I, I think that's a good thing. So some conversation about safety in the game, 
Some think, Johnny, that it should be simple, right? Just mandate net guards. Just just make it so that this can't ever happen again. And that's what the instinct is, that you never want to have to talk about something like this again. But it's not necessarily that simple. You were a player in the league. You understand equipment. You understand the players need to have a say in all of this. So what goes through your head from a player's standpoint when you hear the conversations being had right now? So... I, I, it's tragic that we have to have stuff like this happen. And this is the most tragic of all before we maybe have a safety on a safety conversation. This is going to come from a guy who came to the NHL, never having worn anything but a full cage and with no illusion of being tough or macho like that. I wasn't trying to do any of that. I played my entire career professionally, no face mask, no mouth guard, no wrist guards, no Kevlar socks, like no nothing. and why would I, it's beyond stupid why I would not have a visor on. Like, what am I doing without a visor on? But that, you know, there was a comfort level there. I didn't want to look through a shield I'd never looked through before. And that's the root of the argument that players don't want stuff mandated on what they have to wear because, you know, that's their working office and they want to go with what they're comfortable with. Um, and if they want to assume a degree of risk because their gloves are shorter, well, then their wrists are a little exposed, but they feel like that's worth it so I can stick handle. Now, you break a wrist, it's different than if you get hit in the eye or in the neck, obviously. But that's the sort of conversation the PA wants to support their players to make the choice that they want. And, and that's why there'll be a little pushback. That's like the you know, tangible, we want to play, we want to be comfortable. The other ridiculous part of it is like, you know, the appearance of it. Like, they, you know, there's a, you know, I want to I feel like I look good, whatever that means. And having the you know a big bulky neck thing on might not having ear guards on might not having a longer cage might not and guys will sort of push back on those things being forced on them because they don't like the way it looks. As ridiculous as that sounds, that would be part of the conversation. To me, Pierre, I think first off, the easiest and most obvious and should happen yesterday. Every minor hockey organization in the world should mandate neck guards. I don't know why there ever will be a 12 or 13 or 14 year old boy or girl playing without a neck guard on. It should never happen. You do that. Then when they get to college, they get to minor pro, they get to NHL. They're at least used to having that on. And yeah. then the other part of it is if, if they want to go down that road and the NHL want to try to mandate neck guards, they would just have to grandfather them in. So every, like, like a helmet, like a visor, every next player. And in 10 years, everyone will have a neck guard on. Like that's, that's how they would have to do it because the guys who are not used to wearing them wouldn't think it's fair that I have to put something on that might impact the way I'm doing my job midstream when I've never worked with that piece of equipment before. Yeah, well, I mean, all three of my kids, it's mandated in their leagues here in Toronto. You can't even get on the ice for practice without a net guard uh, on my kids' teams. But, you know, I try to get into this on insider trading, but, you know, the, the problem with that, with our insider trading hit is we're so limited uh, mm. in time. And I don't know if what I said made any sense last night, but, you know, I talked to a couple of manufacturers yesterday. I also talked to a couple of LA Kings players. I went to the morning skates, saw you there, MJ. And I was curious as outside the box as this may sound, you know, the league continues to work with manufacturers on cut resistant products, right? And so with the Evander Kane thing, as you know, Ryan, you know, players now, some players are wearing the cut resistant thing on their wrist and, and obviously, after the Eric Carlson scary incident years ago, you know, legs and feet. And it's like we're this reactive league in sport where something happens and then you react. And, and you know, part of what I was 
I'm wondering if the technology is there where you look at a speed skater, and this is what I talked about. I started trading. I know I sound, you know, they also are interested in cut resistant for obvious reasons. And they wear a head to toe cut resistant onesie, if you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I spoke with Eric Bedard, the former Canadian Olympic short track speed skater yesterday. His company, and I'm not, this is not about, there's other companies too, but his company, Nagano Skate, does this and has had a cut resistant top actually approved by the National Hockey League in the last year. Now, again, there are other products, other manufacturers wear anything as long as you wear something in my mind, but what we don't have yet is the head to toe. And I went into the King's dressing room and and I, and I'm, I was ready to be looked at funny when I asked this, but I asked a couple players, would you at least try out if, if they came out with a cut resistant head to toe, you know, well, you say head, well, not head, but neck. Obviously, head. Going obviously neck, neck, neck to your ankles. So, so that there is no piece of skin left unprotected underneath your equipment to the skate. You know, from here, I know. Again, I sound like an idiot, and you're allowed to to tell me. Well, I mean, I, no, what I would Pierre, say, Pierre, what I say, Pierre, is that Pierre. you don't you don't need every. I mean, that's a lot of weight. That's a lot of extra. I mean, the areas well, the where you're making risk, these things. But the way they're making these products now, they're they're more and more breathable. I mean, obviously, speed skaters wear them. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just saying. So, Pierre, I like growing up. I wore a onesie. My gear. Right. Exactly what you're talking about, like a cotton one, like the little buttons up the middle and the trap door in the back. Like that's what I wore until I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. So that's what you're talking about. When I played, I wore like the blue Stansfield pajamas, basically. Right. But I wore the full pants. Full socks, full shirt. So in essence, I did have my whole body covered, not by anything that was going to help me, but it was all covered. Um, the problem is, you know, I've played with a ton of guys who don't wear anything under their shoulder pads. Yeah, just and that's still the case. That's still the case. And that's the guys. issue. Like, are yeah. you going to say you have to You have to wear this? They're going to be like, I don't want to wear that on my – like, I wear compression shorts. I don't wear pants. So my knees are uncovered, and the back of my calf might be exposed, but that's how yeah. I like to do it. That's the issue. Now, if I ran a team – I would have demo day and I would have all the companies that do this thing and all their gear would be there. And I'd say, boys, let's, let's give her a whirl. Well, well that's happening. One, so, two, three guys pick stuff up. Yeah. So I know, for example, Winnipeg Jets bought not only from Nagano Skate, but they bought from all the other obvious hockey manufacturers. They bought a bunch of different cut resistant tops mm-hmm. and sleeves and the Jets bought a whole bunch and had the players try them out at training camp if they wanted. So, that's all you can do as a team when it's not mandated is you can just say, here it is. Try it out if you want. You know, it's obviously we think we it's encourage it. Yeah, we would exactly. prefer it. Exactly. Yes. There's yeah. there's an invincibility there, right, guys that, you know, and, and every player is going to be a little bit different. But I think, you know, a lot of times guys feel somewhat invincible. And and at times you wonder if the game needs to protect players from themselves in some way, shape or they, form. They but they do have the a time. say. You're right, Ryan, though. You, they, yeah. you, you're right. You're absolutely right. And they do it. They do it. But, you know, equipment's a thing. I think it's a finicky thing. Mm-hmm. It's such a personal thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to start, you know, yeah, I just, uh, again, it's, I, it's a tricky one. I just, wish grandfathered once, in. I just wish for once, though, that it was more proactive as opposed to reactive. But it's just, I guess that's just the way it is. Yeah. yeah. Human nature. And again, our condolences um, to Adam and Adam Johnson's entire family, his teammates, just really, really tough, Uh, really, really tough.
So sending our thoughts. Uh, okay, time for just a couple other quick hitters, guys, and then we'll move on. Uh, we've got the Boston Bruins and the Vegas Golden Knights. It's ridiculous what they're doing here, Johnny. I mean, for the, they haven't lost in regulation yet. It's, it's nuts. And I asked you guys before which team was maybe, you know, going to be able to sustain this a little bit longer. But put this into perspective how impressive this is. Well, you're talking like, you know, 10, 12, 13% of the season done in, in a, an era where it's tighter than ever and to not lose a game in regulation, to do it on the heels of a Stanley Cup where you're supposed to be having the hangover, yeah. you're supposed to have guys be injured, you're supposed to have guys who don't have normal summer preparation, and Vegas is just chugging along. And I don't know if that's more impressive than Boston, who lost their heart and soul leader and their other number two centerman and traded away a former heart trophy winner and like, oh, yeah, they're going to just roll along as well. It is wild what those teams are doing. And I wonder, Ryan, if this doesn't suggest, because we watch across the league, and you know what in Edmonton, we see it all over the place. Hockey early can be really scratchy. Mm. Like it's not, you know, it's teams aren't all on point and they're learning stuff and new bodies. And I wonder if these two teams, beyond being great and have excellent coaches and tremendous talent, they're drawing on the experience of being good and winning. Like they know kind of how to operate as a unit when the games are up in the air. And more often than not, they make the right plays, the right decisions that players that are used to being there and being successful. Like it just feels like, you know, whenever Boston needs a goal, they go, they, they find one. Yeah. Like whenever yeah. Vegas needs to kill a penalty, they, they do it. Like they just, I just think of one, if it's just muscle memory from the success they had last year. I asked Kelly McCrimmon, the GM of the of the um, Golden Knights, on um, Monday or Tuesday this week. I asked him why he thought his team was able to come out of the gates like they have and avoid the trappings that Colorado and Tampa and other Cup champions have had the last few years. Right, the short summer, lack of energy, just the hangover thing. And first of all, he said we may flatline at some point. We may hit a flat spot here at some point here because it is what it is. Short summer. But he said the one factor that he looks at that's different from the other teams, they only change one player. I mean, Riley Smith was tough to trade away, heart and soul Mm -hmm. guy. But basically, they brought back their cup champion roster otherwise. And his point is, other cup champions, I mean, Colorado and Tampa had a ton of changes because of the salary cap. You're bringing in new faces. Any team will have an adjustment period of new faces, right? And Vegas doesn't have that. They just get to pick up where they left off. Uh, Nick Backstrom stepping back from the game right now. Given my ongoing injury situation, I decided to take some time and step away from the game. Difficult decision. One that I feel is right for my health at this time. This is a good player. Man, he's been such a good player for such a long time. I don't know. This generation's uh, Adam Oates, Johnny, like that assist guy, just a pure, amazing assist guy. Yeah, one of my favorite players, though, super smart. When he was at his best, too, like, good defensive player. You'd never think it because he had such a great stick. Incredible passer, perfect, you know, compliment to Alex Ovechkin, arrived together, played together, and, you know, he did the work, and he always shot the puck, and they just thrived together. But I just did a game and wash last week, and I saw firsthand, like, hip resurfacing surgery is a massive surgery, and he's into his mid to late 30s now. And, you know, sometimes – even if the heart is willing, the body is not. And Nick, he can't really, he can't skate. He can't skate anymore. And like he's in pain and he can't get around the ice. And so like, he's just sort of 
surviving out there. He wasn't being able to do what he wants to do. So I, I understand the very tough decision to kind of step away because he's got a standard for himself and he wasn't living up to it. Plus the, the, the turmoil he's putting into his body, Pierre. Um, I, I would assume that sometime in the next whatever, the doctors will sign off that he has to stop playing. He won't retire. He's got one more year at nine million bucks. So he's going to get that. Right. Better get that. But uh, the doctor will identify his hips are degenerative, I'm sure. And uh, that'll be the end to a guy who's again, like a real borderline Hall of Fame player. He's right there. He's that good. Yeah, so the Caps are really careful on this day that you know, I talked to someone there. They want to be so respectful to, to a legacy player that they're not saying anything other than he needs time right now and, and we'll see what happens. Because it may very well be, I think, that the team knows he's probably not going to play again. But it may be that Nick Backstrom isn't there yet mentally himself. And this has happened mm-hmm. with other players too, by the way. So for now, it's just TBD. Hopefully he feels better in a month or two. And for that reason, by the way, I don't think the Caps can go out and spend his $9 million right away. I think they want to be super careful here with this process. But they're going to need an answer from him way before March 8th trade deadline, right? I mean, that's a big chunk of change that they have available yeah. to them to augment their roster if if they're in contention, by the way. They're going to hear before uh, that. Yeah. They'll, yeah, they'll hear before uh, Christmas. I, I would think so, too. Um, in the meantime, you're right. I mean, probably all signs point to him basically just, you know, as he should, by the way, he earned that contract, collecting like Brent Seabrook and Che Weber and Carey Price are right now until mm-hmm. the deal expires, and then you can announce your retirement. A couple of need-to-know numbers on Backstrom, courtesy of the Quizmaster. Has earned assists on 34% of Alexander Ovechkin's career goals. So he's been a big part of that yeah. run. And uh, quick th- math, that's what uh, two like, two hundred and seventy nine of his eight twenty four. Three hundred goals, yeah, yeah. yeah. Crazy. And Backstrom third in assists since entering the NHL in 07-08. Crosby, Kane, and Backstrom. Crosby with. Uh, you, know, uh, you know what's going to be nope. sad yeah. is when Obi breaks the record and Nicky's not there. Yeah, because yeah. it's probably going to happen next year. Right? Should have been him feeding him. And it should have been, been him, him feeding him. Assist, of course, but even yeah. the fact. Like in that moment, they would both know with each other, like, we did this together. Yeah. Obi's the king here. Obi's going to have the record, but we did this together. That would have been, uh, I'm sure he'll be there. I'm sure he'll be on the flights and on the on the trip when he gets close because he'll want to like be out there to celebrate. But that would have been something magical for two players that have had, whose success has been so intertwined with each other. Yeah. Great point, MJ. That was the breakdown brought to you by Kuma Outdoor Gear. Johnny, thank you kindly for your time. Uh, Pierre, what stood out to you about Drew Doughty? We're going to get to the interview in a second here. I think what stood out to me is that this is a player that embraces change and and wants to work at his craft and not stay in the past. And uh, it's showing because Drew Doughty looks unbelievable Mm. so far this year. Johnny, a former teammate of his told him, you're not taking over games anymore the way you used to. You need to start doing that again. Jake Mazen. Ah, shouldn't have told him that before he played Toronto because he's pretty darn good. And so was his team. Guys who are in their 30s should not be leading the league in ice time. And he does it, and he doesn't look taxed by it. It's amazing how much he can play well. He looks great. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with uh, LA Kings defenseman Drew Doughty. Here's that interview now. Over 1,100 games, uh, 600 some odd points, a uh, couple of cups, couple gold medals. There's not much he hasn't done in the game. Drew Doughty joining us. Drew, uh, thanks for taking some time. You're on the road. 
is is it easier for you to do this kind of stuff when you're uh, when you're on the road and maybe don't have the pulls that you have when you're back at home? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, when I'm back home, obviously, got my three kids, three girls. Uh, they keep me pretty busy and just try to spend as much time with them when I'm I'm home and try not to agree to too much of this stuff when I'm back in LA. <laughs> but uh, when I'm on the road, lots of downtime, not much to do. So always have time for this kind of stuff. We were very strategic in when we asked. We we yeah. kind of figured that, so we asked when you were out on the road. Tough to be away for Halloween with three kids, I imagine. Did you get some pics from back home and yeah. what everybody dress up as? I did. They were all Ariel's, uh, mer the mermaid. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I got lots of pics and videos. And, yeah, it sucks missing on those types of things. You know, it's part of being a hockey player. You're going to miss out on some things, seeing your kids grow up and whatnot. And, you know, it's hard, but uh, it's just something you got to deal with. And then, uh, you know, the day when retirement comes, I'll make up for all those missed out times. Drew, I've watched a bunch of your games this year, uh, including the one in Vegas the other night. Uh, furious comeback that just fell short. But uh, I, I, I always worried about asking this question because sometimes the player thinks I'm saying last year wasn't as good. But I, I'm saying this in a very positive way. You look like the Drew Doughty, the young Drew, like you look like the fountain of youth has found you here right now, the way you're playing. Is that fair? Do you feel that way? Or or do you see a backhanded compliment there from me? I, I, I think uh, that I'm definitely kind of playing with, uh, I'm trying to think how to say this, but I'm definitely playing with a lot more offense in my game. I'm definitely trying to make more things happen. Um, you know, I remember I was a, uh, actually at the bar with Jake Muzzin before the season started. And I was like, just talking to Muzz and just saying like, you know, like I feel good out there still. I feel like I'm the same player. I feel I do all the same things. Like what's the difference? And he's like, he used to take over more games back in the day. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Like we, we've got a lot more skilled players on our team. And I maybe, you know, didn't take upon, take it upon myself to kind of take over the game when we were down or even when we were up, just like, really shutting it down and uh, doing the things I used to do. And, and I mean, I, I felt like uh, when Muzz said that to me, I was kind of like, you know what, I got to start doing that again. And there's been some instances this year where I've done that. And, you know, I, I loved every minute of it. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm trying to increase in my offensive game. I, I used to be pretty offensive when I was younger. And then mm -hmm. over the years when we were winning, you know, I kind of started being more defensive. And then I think I got maybe a little too over defensive and uh, wasn't playing that offensive side of the puck like I used to. So I wanted to bring that back and I worked really hard on it in the summer. I watched a lot of video to, to improve that, watch other players even. And uh, yeah, feeling good. It's interesting that that he's the one that brings that to you. I imagine there aren't a ton of guys out there that you can have that conversation with and take it that way. Uh, obviously, you know, you got, you got a great relationship with him, but really interesting that he brought that out in you, that person. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a, a bunch of guys that I've played with that would, would tell me exactly how it is. And they would, uh, you know, say the same sort of thing, but I've got a great relationship with Muzz. He's, we're always super honest with each other. doesn't matter if we don't want to hear it or whatever. And it's not, I always want to hear things, even if I'm offended by it or whatever it is, I still, I still want to hear it. I want you just to tell me the truth, what you think. So, um, you know, I appreciate those relationships I have with, uh, my ex teammates, uh, and the honesty that we have between each other. And, uh, yeah, uh, there's been so many other guys that have done the same thing that Muzz did for me. And uh, yeah, like I said, I appreciate it.
Yeah, that's kind and of a, wonder, that's kind of a got your back story right there. Hey, Pierre. I mean, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> kind of stepped up for you a little there. Uh, I was going to add to that, Drew. That it, I feel like some of this is strategic too. The way you're playing, in the sense that I remember having a conversation with you a year ago about how the game had gotten more offensive again around the league and the younger players and the way some of the players train in the off season, all the skills stuff. I don't know if you remember talking about that with me, but I, I feel like. You know, the numbers are up. It showed last year goals per game are way up. And and the way you're playing again, I think, feeds into the way the game needs to be played anyway. Do you agree? I mean, that's what we're seeing around the league. I mean, yeah, I'm still kind of – I'm not that old school, I wouldn't say, but I'm still, you know <laughs> – I love that the game's going super offensive, but I still like the, you know, sound type of play style where it's, you know, good both ways. I want – our top players to be playing good defense. I don't want these guys that are just strictly offense, you know, that that's just kind of uh, the way I grew up and that's kind of what I still want, but I understand that that's just not how it is anymore. You know, you're going to have the number one D man being a pure offensive defenseman and not as worried about defenses. Maybe uh, they were, you know, five, 10 years ago. So um, yeah, the, you, the, the game evolves and you have to evolve as a player. So I'm uh, doing everything I can to do that. Um, you know, something as simple as high flips in the game now is so big in the game and it, it mm. frustrates me because guys aren't even making plays. They're just going and grabbing the puck and high flipping in the neutral zone and guys are getting, you know, odd man rushes out of it. But uh, I've learned that I, you know, I have to bring that into my game. And uh, yeah, like I said, the game's evolving and I have to change my game. I'm interested in this concept of of taking over a game, you know, what Jake told you to do. And I think, you know, maybe people who haven't been in it would say, well, why don't you just start every game and do that? Just do that every game right from your first shift. But it's kind of not like that. It's more it's more finding a moment. And then, But what clicks in in that moment, Drew? How do you know when you're sitting there and you're like, okay, it's time now? And what's different in that moment? Yeah, so, I mean, you like enter the game. It's It's not like you're like oh, I'm not going to try to play my best or anything like that. You're always going into the game trying to play your best, but there's like situations you get put in. You know, you might be up by a couple goals. You uh, might be playing against Connor McDavid that night, and there's just chances I can't take unless we're down by a couple goals. So mm -hmm. a lot of times when you're trying to fully take over a game, you're not going to feel that you need to do that until maybe the second or third period, and then you might step on the pedal a little bit, but um, you know, when you try to do that too much, uh, you're going to make mistakes. You're, you're not going to be successful with it. And, uh, yeah, so the situation just kind of comes up and I mean, going into basically every third period, I'm either, I kind of have it in my brain, you know, I either got to be super shut down right now, or we're down a goal or down a couple and I need to take it over on the offensive side of the puck. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I can't really explain how I get that feeling or why I get that feeling, but, uh, yeah, it usually just comes to me, and uh, hmm. it just I just flow with it. I I don't want to make too much of this, but I was there was a sequence late in the second period in, in the Toronto game Tuesday night, and you were on the ice for most of it, or at least some of it. Yeah, not all of it because it was I think two minutes and forty five, uh, two minutes and forty five seconds where you kept the Leafs hemmed in their zone right to the buzzer at the end of the second, and you don't see that a lot. In again, the way the game is played today. Right. It's so quick yeah. and, and the puck changes hands. What's that like when you have a moment like that? I mean, you guys didn't score, but it was almost like a statement like, you know, we're in charge of this game here. Yeah. Um, actually, it's something that we we talk about as a team a lot. So, you know, there's moments in a game where um, you have to 
so we talk about like changing, like changing our lines. So if a team's really tired, if you can get another line, another D pair on the ice while those other guys on the Leafs are still on the ice, uh, that's a huge momentum shift for your team because we're able to, you know, sustain two minutes and a half of in zone time. Um, and then when it goes the other way, obviously that brings your team down and, uh, you a lot of times you're going to give up a goal and then you're, the momentum swings the other way. So it's something we, our coach talks about a lot is, uh, moments in the game and it's not it's not like the plays you necessarily make it's it's out changing the other team and it's uh you know outsmarting them uh they they get the puck out quick you know they're tired you got to get it right back in and then keep them keep them on the ice type thing so that's something we always talk about and that was a big moment in the game because uh mm. we easily you know could have let them go into the third period with a goal or something like that and then they would have thought oh we're right back in this game we're going to come back and win but we we you know, dominated that last couple shifts of the second period and let them know, you know, we're not going to shy away and we're going to not let you come back in this game. And obviously that mm-hmm. doesn't always work that way, but did last night. Think about the defensive side of your game. You know, you, you've always brought lots of offense, but you are tasked with playing against the best players on the planet, kind of night in, night out. And we've watched you have some epic battles with some of the best players of the generation. I wonder how when you take on Edmonton right now and you've got Connor McDavid uh, and Leon Dreisaitl, quite frankly, um, you know, at this stage of your career to be, you know, in that fight with a player of this caliber, you know, with this generation, what those matchups kind of mean to you and how competitive and serious you take that. Yeah, I mean, uh, those matchups and potentially being able to actually do the complete job and shut them down and keep them off the score sheet. Uh, that means more than more to me than, you know, scoring a, a goal or whatever it could be. Uh, I, I take those matchups with a lot of pride. I have for a long time now, if the coach didn't put me out there against them, I would be sitting on the bench pissed off and be like, <laughs> why am I not out there against them? You know? So, and uh, at the same time though, it's uh I don't know if the right word's scary, but when you go up against McDavid, it's like kind of like, oh crap, like this is, uh, you know, I want to do the best job I can, but there's a really, really good opportunity that uh, he's going to get me at some point. He's just too good. And, uh, but I love it. And, uh, you know, I want to be a hard player to get play against. And I think most of the top guys would tell you that I am a hard player to play against. I'm an honest player. I mean, I'm good with the puck. I'm good without the puck. I'm good positionally. And I'm good at defending. So, uh, you know, I take a lot of pride in that. And I always will and always have. And I think that's how you, uh, you know, win win games and win championships. I know I haven't won one for a long, long time. But uh, I know that's how we did it back in the day. And the pathway to that is potentially through him or a team like Vegas that, that's as good as their – like the, the pathway to winning is usually through those kinds of guys. For sure. We're going to probably – if we want to do anything, we're going to have to beat Edmonton. We're going to have to beat Vegas, and they're, they're both very good teams. Um, actually, the game we had against Vegas just a couple nights ago, that was, that was a hell of a game. I don't know how many people really watched that game, but both teams like really played well. Like Neither team could say that they didn't play well and you know went into overtime, or I think it was a shootout even. But uh, – that, that was just a great hockey game. And and we want to play those teams in playoffs. We don't want to just like sneak by playing other teams. We want to play the best teams and try to beat them and measure up against them. And uh, you're not going to win a Stanley Cup if you don't beat the best teams. So uh, going into this year, you know, we, we were not satisfied uh, winning one round. We want to do as much damage as we can. We want to get to the ultimate goal, obviously. And it's going to be super tough. But I think we got a really good team this year. And uh, 
I don't know how many people realize that, to be honest. Yeah, well, I always think like when you win a game in Toronto, I know the world doesn't revolve around Toronto, but come on, Drew, you know, you know, it's like to play in Toronto. And uh, I was thinking the other night that that was a sweet win for you guys, just because there are certain markets where you'd like to pop in and say, hey, by the way, we're here. And yeah, uh, that was a pretty, pretty dominating performance from you guys. Yeah, I think that uh, I think we a lot of us felt what you just said, to be honest. We know we're coming to Toronto. You know, the media is always buzzing around Toronto. Nylander's got this many points. Uh, Matthew's got this many goals, like that, that type of stuff. And we wanted to come in and we talked about it before the game. If, if Vegas is our standard, uh, the way we want to play as a team, we're going to be just fine. But if we want to play that type of game, you know, once every four yeah. games, then it, we're not going to make it anywhere. And so before the game, we were determined to keep that standard. And uh, we definitely did last night. It's an interesting headspace feeling like yeah, maybe people don't quite realize how good we are and using that as, you know, a team that's motivated to kind of show people, not that you really care about the outside world, but really if you feel like you haven't been given that respect from, from day one of the season. Uh, I wouldn't say I don't completely feel, I know there's some people talking about us and, and saying we're good, but I don't think anyone really has us at near the top or anything like that. And maybe we don't deserve to be at the top yet. We haven't showed it enough this year. It's early in the season, but, uh, I know that all of us in our room believe it. I know that uh, we're having a lot of fun and that even if people are doubting us, we, we talk about it. Uh, we, I know it's like, uh, don't worry about what everyone's saying, but we, we hear about it, we talk about it, and uh, we try to prove them wrong. Drew, uh, not to make everyone here feel older, but uh, <laughs> I realized uh, last month uh, I, I was asking Connor Bedard questions at the media tour event in, in Vegas and realized that he was four years old when uh, Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal in Vancouver. Yeah, that's wild. In a way. And, of course, you're a big part of that team. You were the kid on that team in 2010 and, uh, and obviously at the heart of the 2014 uh, gold medalist in Sochi as well. Can you believe it's been that long that you haven't worn the Team Canada colors in, in an Olympic Games? Uh, I mean, do you yeah, feel the um, same frustration that others have? Yeah, it's 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 kind of sad in a way. Um, or it is sad. It's not kind of sad. Um, I really enjoyed playing in those tournaments, uh, all of Canada watching. Obviously, winning gold for all of Canada was huge. And oh, that was just such a great experience and just uh, so much fun. And, you know, now that I'm... Uh, getting older and older, you know, I might not have another opportunity to do it. So the fact that we didn't play in the last couple, you know, it, it sucks because I would have liked to think I would have been there. And uh, like I said, I'm getting older and I hope I hope I get to put that jersey on again one day, though. I'll never stop thinking that even if I'm still playing at 38 years old, I'm going to still hope I'm on that Team Canada team no matter what. And that'll be I'll be ter- determined to do that. So um yeah, it is sad that we haven't done that in a long time. Well, you never know. And hopefully, Pierre, you and I, uh, we get to be there covering it again. Because those are tons <laughs> yeah. of fun, man, from our end. Tons <laughs> of fun. Uh, Drew, before we let you slide out of here, can we do like two minutes of, uh, of rapid fire here? Getting to know yeah. Drew Dowdy a little bit. You good with yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, very serious, intense questions here. So you're going to want to brace yourself. All right. Uh, all right, here we go. Getting to know Drew Dowdy. Day off. Complete day off away from the rink. What time are you peeling out of bed? Well, nowadays, friggin' 7 a.m. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. Kids, right? But okay, what about on the road? Back in the, on the road, poo. 
I'll sleep in it. Well, it depends when breakfast time is cut off, but I'll, I'll get up five minutes before breakfast time is cut off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Number of times that you have been to Disney. Uh, I'm going to go with, I think it's about four times now. Okay. Zero up until four years ago. So you never went to Disney before you had kids? No, never one time. Never really? had an interest to either, to be honest. So you're not a ride guy. Are you a ride guy? Have you discovered you're I'm a ride not a guy? Ride Do you have a guy. favorite ride? I'm fine with like rides, but once they start flipping, I'm not fine anymore. Like I will hmm. close my eyes for the entire loop. And uh, I assume you mean Disney, Disneyland in Anaheim and not Disney World yeah. in Florida, given yeah. where you live. Yeah. Well, he's got one right next door. I mean, if he's got yeah, one right next door and doesn't go, he, away. I still yeah. don't go. <laughs> uh, what are you? What are you crappy at? Like, what are you no good at? Hmm. Let me think here. What am I crappy? <laughs> Don't at? think too long. It starts to look cocky. I, well, I think most people that know me know I got a little bit of that in me, but um, what am I crappy at? I'm trying to think here. Like I can't draw like, and Pierre can't okay, pick well, NFL I wouldn't teams. say I'm a good drawer. Probably not a good writer. Not Definitely not good at math. Anything to do with school besides phys ed. I'd be crappy at all of them, I would think. All right. Favorite TV show? Uh, man, of all time, probably like The Wire. I used to so love good. that show. Yeah. Great so choice. Yeah. Yeah. I binged like, I was, I think I was at a world championship one year and I binged all of the seasons in one world championship traveling Impressive. that year. Uh, 10 day, five game road trip. How many suits are you packing? Uh, depends if it's, uh like a cold road trip because if it's a cold road trip i just bring like one overcoat and then i have a couple different pants and a couple different shirts but uh maybe if we're going to florida or something like that i would maybe bring two suits maybe cranberry sauce with thanksgiving and christmas dinner or cranberries have no place at the dinner table uh not not no place for me no place i'm not messing with cranberry for anything guy you respected the heck out of, but hated the most as an opponent. I mean, Joe Thornton would be one of them that mm -hmm. just retired. Um, I thought you were going to say that, believe it or not. I actually yeah. thought you were going to say that. I mean, I, he, I covered those Kings, King Sharks uh, series. Oh, oh my man. goodness. He, he's a dirty little bugger too. I bet you he'd admit that. Like he, uh, <laughs> he had some good cheap shots on me over the years and, uh, yeah. But I obviously respected the hell out of him and really enjoy like hanging out with him outside of the rink too. So yeah, he'd be my guy, I think. So when it's time for you to pack it in, do you want the farewell tour rink to rink or is it going to be a tweet on a beach shirtless? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I think I would struggle like knowing this is going to be my last game in this arena and this arena yeah. and this arena. I think I would like be struggling. Like I'd be like probably like crying mid game or something. Like I'd be super sad. So I think it, knowing me, I'm a spur of the moment guy. So might be kind of similar to him. I don't know if I'll, I'll probably wear my shirt. I'm not in as good shape. As him, but. <laughs> We're glad the whole hockey world thought he was going to pan that camera down. And everybody <laughs> I think is just glad you thought the same thing too, didn't you? Oh, for sure. <laughs> Uh, well, hopefully it's a few years before uh, before any time of announcement like that from you, Drew. Thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, guys.
And that'll wrap up the podcast this week. A big thanks to the Los Angeles Kings and Drew Doughty for taking some time to uh, share some stories and have a chat with us here on the podcast. Big thanks to our title sponsor, Kuma Outdoor Gear, as always. And a big thanks to you for your downloads and your subscriptions. Make sure that you uh, subscribe uh, to all of our various platforms. We're on YouTube. We are on Twitter. We are on uh, Apple, Spotify, all the different, wherever you get your audio, uh, we're available there as well. And if you get a chance, leave us a review over on uh, iTunes. We would love to know what you think about the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Got Your Back. We'll talk next week. Cheers.